Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. A great episode for you today. Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris, you've heard her before on the podcast. She talked beautifully about the history of medicine, fascinatingly about the history of surgery, and how, until so recently, if we put our lives in the hands of surgeons, we are frankly rolling the dice. They were fantastically incompetent. Well, let's change, thank goodness. Science is a beautiful thing. And Dr. Fitzharris's work really helps us understand how medicine and science has evolved over the past 150 years. It's quite extraordinary. In this conversation with Lindsay, recorded at the Chalk Valley History Festival, so you may hear some festival goers. You may hear some wind. You may hear some flags flapping. You may hear the Victorian merry-go-round harping away in the distance. But I want to bring you this conversation anyway because it's completely fascinating. We talked about the face maker. We talked about the man who basically invented cosmetic surgery. And this was not friends for Instagram influencers. You'll be surprised to know this was for heroic men who were horrifically injured in the battles of the First World War. Medicine could now save them where previously they would have died a horrible, lingering death. But their faces, in many cases, were grotesquely disfigured. This is the story of the man who helped put those faces back together and really helped thousands of people to live out normal, happy, prosperous, fulfilled lives. When in previous conflicts, they'd have been shunned by their families, by society, and they would have not have been able to do so. This is a great story. Apologies if the audio is a bit ropey in parts, but we were in a tent. It's worth it, though. Enjoy. So, everybody, we're here to talk about a very remarkable surgeon. But first of all, Lindsay, tell me, on the outbreak of war in 1914, when someone had a horrific, disfiguring facial injury, on the outbreak of war, what kind of treatment might they expect and what kind of recovery could they look forward to? So, yeah, that's a really good question. You might say that Harold Gillies is the grandfather of plastic surgery, but plastic surgery certainly predated the First World War. In fact, the term plastic surgery was coined in 1798 by a French surgeon named Joseph Dussault. At the time, plastic meant something that you could shape or you could mold. So in this case, a patient's skin or soft tissue. But attempts at reconstructing an entire face really didn't happen until sort of the mid-19th century with the American Civil War. But there were some crucial differences in the Civil War and what ultimately happened in the First World War. The first was that in the Civil War, surgeons didn't really care what it looked like. They just were concerned with restoring function, making sure a patient can eat and can speak. But they didn't go beyond that because they didn't understand germ theory yet, so infection rates could be quite high. For that story, you can see my first book, The Butchering Art, which is about germ theory and Victorian surgery. So they didn't care what it looked like. 
And also, it just wasn't being done on a huge scale. By the end of the American Civil War, there were fewer than 40 plastic operations on record. Wow. Now, when you compare that to what happens in the First World War, where there's hundreds of thousands of men who need facial reconstruction, you can understand why it enters this modern era where new methods can be tried and tested and become standard into practice. And what kind of injuries? And I guess, are we seeing worse injuries because... They're things that are survivable now due to other advances in medicine. Right. Yeah, that's a good question, too. I mean, there were so many advances in artillery and weaponry during the First World War that a company of just 300 men in 1914 could deploy equivalent firepower as a 60,000-strong army during the Napoleonic War. So you see things like flamethrowers invented, that belch forth fire that destroy everything in its place. You see the invention of tanks, which leave its crews susceptible to new kinds of injuries at this time. And, of course, you have the invention of chemical weapons. Men were maimed, they were burned, they were gassed. Before the war was over, 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany alone suffered some form of facial trauma at this time. So there was this enormous need for facial reconstruction, and that's where Harold Gillies steps into the scene. Tell me about him. He was a frontline medic, effectively. Yeah, he had volunteered with the Red Cross, and he was New Zealand-born, Cambridge-educated. But what happens is he goes to France, and he runs into this character named Charles Valadier. He is a French-American dentist. He's sort of bigger than life. He has a Rolls-Royce that he retrofits with a dental chair, and he literally drives it to the front under a hail of bullets. This guy is a legend. He works for free the entire war. And it's really Valadier who shows a young Harold Gillies this desperate need for facial reconstruction near the front. He also teaches Gillies this importance around dentistry when rebuilding a face. A lot of surgeons at this time wouldn't work with dentists. And so this becomes a very important aspect of what Gillies is ultimately able to accomplish. These men were hidden from public, and I really think it's important that we look at their faces today and that we reckon with what war does to the human body, especially as we're seeing the return of old-school warfare in Ukraine. And what are the techniques that are being pioneered at this time to help to reconstruct... We're not going to set up a tent where we do like a, Any a reenactment. Yeah. Step forward. <laughs> Gillies had no textbooks at this time, so he was really making a lot of this up. But there were some procedures that pre-existed. So there was a procedure where you take a flap and move it from the forehead to reconstruct a nose. So if you take a piece of string from the tip of your nose to the top of your forehead, you will find that your nose, the length of your nose, is roughly the length of your forehead. So if you take a piece of tissue and you move it down over the nose, you will find that's a very effective way of reconstructing the nose. And what you do is you take the skin that's remaining and you stretch it over that area to kind of cover it up. So some of these procedures existed. Rhinoplasty is a very old procedure. But of course, the extent of damage that these men were facing from World War I was extensive. And the technique that I find extraordinary is where you do that, but all the way up your arm or your, you can yeah. borrow bits of uninjured skin and tissue and kind of move it a long way up the body, can't you? That's right. So I'm going to show you a picture of William Vicarage. He was injured during the Battle of the Jutland. He was terribly burned, and he becomes the first patient to receive what Gillies called a tubed pedicle. So if you think of plastic surgery, there's two things. There's grafts and there's flaps. Grafts are like the pastrami of plastic surgery. It's like a thin piece of meat, and the flaps are like the steaks, okay? So it's a bigger piece of flesh and tissue. And you're mostly going to need flaps when you're missing noses and pieces of your face. So what would happen is when you move the flap, it would remain open on the back side, and so it could get infected. So what Gillies did was he would take that flap and he would roll it into a cylinder and he'd stitch it so all of the tissue inside 
was encased in skin. So it looked like an elephant's trunk. So if you take a flap from my thigh and you move it up here, it will remain attached to its blood supply until it becomes attached to my abdomen. Then you're going to sever it here. You're going to flip that side up and up to my face and so forth and so on. So you could waltz these trunks of flesh and tissue up to the face in order to reconstruct it. And it was a miracle. This is before antibiotics and Gillies had to do all of this without any textbooks to guide him. So I always keep saying that because even spending five years researching writing this book, it's still a miracle to me that he was able to do this. It is a miracle. And how quickly was he recognized by the military medical authorities and was he given resource and space and support to do this or because initially he must have been kind of developing it whilst being a normal emergency surgeon yeah there was an element of that so when he met Vladier the French guy who was with the Rolls Royce he recognized that there was a need for a specialty unit back in Britain so he went back to the war office and he petitioned for them to uh, open this specialty unit they weren't really convinced there was a need but these were a lot of pencil pushers who weren't seeing the injuries that were happening and coming out of the trenches so they did grant him permission, but he knew that they weren't going to really push for this. So what he did was he went on onto the Strand in London. He got his own labels. He addressed them to himself. He sent them to the front. And very soon, within weeks, all of these men were showing up at his specialty unit with little labels saying to Harold Gillies at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot. So he starts with a specialty unit. He gets overwhelmed by the number of men needing his help, and he eventually opens the first ever hospital dedicated to facial reconstruction, which was the Queen's Hospital in Sidcup. Presumably these, you're not just healing the body, but you are enabling Mm. people to go and have, be less judged by the extent of their very obvious injuries. I mean, there's a a huge element to that going on. Presumably. Yeah, I think, you know, there's a lot of facial bias at this time. I often say that this is a time when losing a limb made you a hero, but losing a face made you a monster to a society that was largely intolerant of these facial differences. I also want to say that I call these men disfigured, and it's even in the subtitle, but I worked with a disability activist who has a facial disfigurement, and we talked about the language, because you might not say someone's disfigured today. You might say they have a facial difference. But It was important to me, and she also agreed, that these men were called disfigured because they were disfigured to the society they lived in. These men, when they left the hospital grounds, were forced to sit on blue benches so that the public knew not to look at them. This was an incredibly isolating experience. Some people probably have seen Boardwalk Empire, and there's a fictional character named Richard Harrow who wears one of these tin masks. These mask makers offered non-surgical solutions to these men, but Again, you have to remember that they were wearing the mask for you, not for them, because they were very uncomfortable, they didn't age, they were fragile, and for a lot of reasons, they didn't offer that long-term solution. They are amazing, they look so realistic, and they were realistic to an extent, but if you were sitting across from someone wearing one of these masks, it doesn't operate like a face, so it could be very unsettling. And a lot of times, these men would wear these masks and their children would flee from them. It was so awful and so isolating, and that really can't be overstated here about what Gillies was able to ultimately do for these men in the end. We can also say, arguably, that Harold Gillies is also a product of those facial biases because he was going far beyond what needed to be done to restore function to make the face socially acceptable as well. I guess I want to just briefly return to the point we made. In the Napoleonic Wars, these people probably wouldn't have survived facial injuries like this. Yes. But many of the advances that you've traced in your previous book, which is brilliant, by the way, means that a little bit like in the War on Terror, we now have more triple amputees and because... Mm -hmm our trauma 
response right. is so good yeah. now. Yes. But that means we have this issue of how to... How to rehabilitate. It, it's a new field, partly because of the advances in other fields as well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, during the Napoleonic Wars, there were men who survived facial injuries, but a lot of times they were killed by their own comrades because it was believed that they were sparing them from a fate worse than death. Wow. We now know that this is like a misplaced belief, of course. This is ableism in action. But so strong was this belief that a facial injury was so terrible. And a lot of it is rooted hundreds of years ago where facial disfigurement was associated with diseases like syphilis. When you have syphilis, your nose tends to cave into the face. You develop something called saddle nose. So it was related to morality. It was related to criminality. A lot of times, certain kinds of crimes, you would get your nose cut off, for instance, or there would be purposeful disfigurement. And that is still alive today. Think about how many Hollywood villains are disfigured today, right? Voldemort, you have Blofeld, you have Harvey Dent and Batman becomes evil after he is disfigured. The Joker, I mean, the list goes on and on. And so I still think that these facial biases are well and alive today. And I would love to see these men as heroes in their own story because they were heroes in their own stories back then. Well, let's hear a little bit more about them because what's so interesting in your book is you chart the journeys these men from the battlefield from the moment of being wounded right the way back. And just their sense of safety and happiness at being in a place that was set up for them in particular is amazing. But tell me about a couple of the journeys of the individuals you followed. The one story that I really like is Private Walter Ashworth. So Private Walter Ashworth was injured on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. If you don't know anything about World War I, you probably recognize the Battle of the Somme. It was a bloodbath. Of the 100,000 British soldiers who took place on the advance that day, 60,000 were killed or injured. Never before or since has a single army suffered such losses on a single day in a single battle. Now, Private Ashworth was hit in the face at that time. He did survive, and what happened was he fell forwards onto the battlefield, and he laid there for three days without a jaw, unable to scream for help. Three days. Now, you might ask yourself, how could you lay on a battlefield for three whole days? But when these stretcher bearers stepped onto the battlefield, they became targets themselves, and they had to make life and death decisions about who was going to be taken off that field. A face wound is very ghastly. It looks like you can't survive it, so a lot of times these men were left in the battlefield. I should say the image is really, really, really troubling. He has lost most, large, of, his face, most yeah. of the bottom portion of his face. And then you show the progression to his yes. post-surgery. And it's completely extraordinary. It's the kind of thing you is. would expect today, let alone yeah. over 100 years ago. I mean, ago. to go from the bullet went right through the side of the face and took off part of his jaw, lots of the tissue. His nose stays intact, but it was horrible. Now, crucial to his survival that day was falling forward. A lot of times, these men fell backwards or they were placed under their backs by well-meaning doctors, and in doing so, they ended up choking on their own blood or their tongue slipped back into their throat because they were missing certain anatomy and they suffocated. So he was very lucky. When he got to Harold Gillies Hospital, his fiance broke off their engagement. Unfortunately, this was not an uncommon experience for a lot of these men. But his story has a bit of a good ending because the fiance's friend got wind of this and she thought this was terrible. And so she began writing Ashworth at the hospital and soon they fell in love and soon they were married. But when Ashworth was discharged from the army, he went back to work as a tailor's assistant and his boss made him work at the back of the shop because he didn't want him to frighten the customers. So one of the themes of the facemaker is that not all wounds are inflicted on the battlefield in the First World War. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the facemaker. More coming up.
Hello everyone, James Rogers here, the host of the Warfare podcast by History Hit. I'm a war historian who works with the UN, NATO and governments around the world. Twice a week, every week, we bring you the defining wars of history and learn about the history of emerging wars. The passengers and crew of 149 were trapped trapped and delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein. We hear from the veterans who served. Guards there would grab a machine gun and fire at us as we went over and could see the splinters flying in all directions. Through to world-leading historians providing context to understand current conflicts. Finland obviously couldn't join NATO, which makes the two Finnish leaders' statements about Finland deciding for itself whether it will join NATO. That makes those statements even more important. Subscribe to Warfare from History Hits on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us on the front lines of military history. The Old Testament. It is one of the most influential collections of texts ever created. And this month on The Ancients, we are exploring some of the Hebrew Bible's most well-known stories, people, objects, and kingdoms, and the influences that inspired them. From the Mesopotamian origins behind the well-known creation story of Noah's Ark and the Great Flood, to world-shaping prophets like Moses, sacred artifacts like the Ark of the Covenant, and the archaeology of Temple Mount. Stay tuned for new episodes of our Old Testament series out every Thursday this June on The Ancients from History Hit. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Would there be bone reconstruction as well? There would have been bone grafting. A lot of times, so they were taking bone and tissue always from the patient. So they weren't necessarily taking bone from animals or from other patients at this point. There was a little bit of that going on, but not that much. So everything to reconstruct Ashworth's face would have come from him. So they would have taken cartilage from the ribs sometimes. They would take a chest flap and move it up over the face. My husband, Adrian Teal, is a cartoonist. He's actually one of the head cartoonists for Spinning Image. And thank goodness for him because he would read the case notes and he would draw it out for me. It was really hard to visualize, you know, some of these case notes, but artists are very important to this story because actually Gillies brings artists into the hospital. They go into the operating theater with him. They draw out everything. And there's an artist named Henry Tonks who's very famous in his own right. And he actually paints portraits of these men. And there's so much more human than the photographs are. Did Gillies, he created an environment, he created a safe place for these men. Was he thinking about the psychological wounds as much as the physical? 
he was always trying to lift their spirits. He would say, don't worry, Sonny, you'll have as good a face as any of us before I'm done with you. And he really bonded with these men. You have to remember that the trauma surgeons near the front, of course, they didn't often know the names of the soldiers. They were just trying to save lives, stop the hemorrhaging, and move on to the next soldier. Whereas Gillies was working with these men for years, sometimes even over a decade. And he really bonds with them. In fact, he had this alternative persona he called Dr. Scroggy, and he would dress up in this alternative persona at night, and he'd bring in champagne and oysters, and he would gamble with the men. All the things that had been technically banned at the hospital, he would allow them to do. So he was always trying to lift their spirits. The other psychological advantage of the Queen's Hospital at Sidcup was everybody was disfigured. So if you were disfigured and you were sent to a general hospital, you might feel a little bit shy about participating in some of the sports events or other events that the hospital had. Whereas at the Queen's Hospital, nobody had to feel shy or self-conscious because everybody had a facial wound. So they had sports days, as I said, they had art clubs, they taught the men how to barber, how to farm, they taught them languages. It was really a community, it was really a town uh, that he built. And I think in that sense, even if he was wasn't thinking specifically about the psychological rehabilitation, he still was attending to that aspect of it. Did demand outstrip supply, though? Did he inspire similar setups, or was it just a huge waiting list to get in to see him? Well, yeah, I mean, it was good luck if you fell into his hands, because as yeah. you say, 280,000 men from France, Britain, and Germany. So there were other surgeons working on facial reconstruction. I talk about them in The Facemaker. There's a man named Jacques Joseph in Germany who's doing it. There's a French surgeon. But they tend to work solo, not with dental surgeons. So Gillies really works collaboratively. He brings in x-ray technicians, artists, mask makers, dental surgeons, all kinds of people. And I think for that reason, he's able to achieve what he achieves because it is a collaborative effort working to rebuild these men's faces, whereas some of these other surgeons were just working alone and they weren't necessarily approaching the problem of rebuilding a face from many different angles, including creatively as well as scientifically. But there were many, many people who just had to go with the mask option and... There were. I mean, Gillies hated the masks because they reminded him of the limitations of plastic surgery at that time. He still employed mask makers because if you think about rebuilding a face, if it takes many years, the in-between while you're convalescing, you might still need the mask. So there's one man who would wear the mask when he'd go out into London on days out, and he, when he would come back to the hospital, he would hold up one, two, three, or four fingers to let Gillies know how many people had fainted or reacted negatively to his face when he took it off. If it got too hot. Because remember, these masks are made out of metal. We've all just come out of a pandemic here. We all know how even the masks that we wear can be very uncomfortable. So imagine wearing a metal mask over an injured face. It must have been really uncomfortable. You're reminding us all that the wounds sustained on the battlefield, 14 to 18, it's only the beginning of the gigantic trauma that would have assaulted societies across the world. Yeah, absolutely. And, and deep into the 20s and 30s, beyond those scars endured. A lot of people ask me, is this book about the guinea pig club? Because a lot of people, especially in this country, are familiar with the guinea pigs. The guinea pig club was, they were operated on a surgeon named Archibald McIndoe. He was actually Harold Gillies' cousin, and it was Gillies who introduced him to the strange new art of plastic surgery. Archibald McIndoe operates on the burn pilots of World War II, and he becomes really famous, and actually he sort of eclipses Gillies' legacy in a way, because there's a lot more media during World War II, and there's the romance of the World War II pilots. But it really began on the battlefields of World War I. And so I tell people this is sort of the prequel to the guinea pig club. And we should say, why were they called the guinea pig club? 
because they were literally the guinea pigs. They were being experimented on. And in fact, there's a letter a man wrote to Gillies, and he said that it really got him upset that they were called the guinea pigs because the real guinea pigs, he said, were found on the battlefields of the First World War. So a lot of that got... I wouldn't say covered up, but it got forgotten during the Second World War. But it really does start during the First World War, that important work. Now that we've got the world's leading medical historian on this stage, (laughs) can we talk about the First World War and other medical advances? Because it is a time of extraordinary transformation in in military equipment, tactics, everything, which we will park for the moment, but in medicine and emergency response. It is. What else are we looking at? So you have the birth of plastic surgery and facial reconstruction. You also have advances in anesthesia at this time. So anesthesia hadn't really progressed since 1846 when ether had been discovered. So you're talking about chloroform with a rag over the face or a rudimentary mask with ether. Now, this is problematic for Gillies. In fact, there is a scene in The Facemaker where Gillies is bent over a patient and the patient is breathing ether back into Gillies' face and he's getting sleepy from it. So this is a real problem. Also, putting a mask over a damaged face could be painful and difficult for other reasons. So what you have is parallel advances in anesthesia at this time. In fact, it is Gillies anesthetist Ivan McGill who develops intratracheal anesthesia at the very end of the war, which is really important to the subspecialty of anesthesia. Okay, intratracheal is? The, yeah, through the trachea... Um, it's right through the, the mid part of the throat. So again, you're not having to put the mask over the face necessarily. Remember again, too, when you put the mask over the face, it's obscuring the area that needs surgical attention. So you have basically the surgeon and anesthetist fighting over this very small area that they need to work on. Which is also terribly damaged, yeah. Yeah, which um, is terribly damaged. I mean, it's You're it's butchering crazy. our book and this book, but you're butchering our book because it's a civilian application of medicine. Just made me so powerfully aware of two things. One is how unbelievably lucky we are to be alive today. <laughs> yes, like, yeah. And the other is how recent, like... Mm. Yeah, the uh, leaps and bounds that the, we've made. We're talking four generations. Like, if you look at, yeah. I don't know, shipbuilding or transport, that yeah, way precedes so true, yeah. medicine. And our modern understanding of surgery is... Super recent. Yeah. I mean, we hit the ground running in the mid-19th century once we solve pain issues with anesthesia. So what happens in the butchering art is it opens with this scene um, of the first ever operation under ether in 1846 in London. Robert Liston, the fastest knife in the West End, he's there, he's a real showman, and it works. Anesthesia, it's a miracle. We've solved the age of pain. But the problem is that now surgeons are more willing to go deeper into the body and they don't understand germ theory yet. So these operations become nothing more than slow-moving executions. So in steps Joseph Lister, who you might recognize through Listerine. He didn't invent it, but it was named for him, and he ultimately solves that next problem. And those two things, in combination, allow us to make leaps and bounds in medicine, because once you can control the pain and you understand germ theory and can control post-operative infection, you're off and running. So you're absolutely right. I mean, when you think about Gillies, I mean, someone came up to me earlier and wanted me to sign a book for a woman named Elizabeth, and she actually worked with Gillies. She was a nurse working with Gillies in his burns unit. So it's not that many generations removed. And I love when plastic surgeons especially come up to me at events, and they know all about Sir Harold Gillies, and they want to talk to me about his instruments. There's something called the Gillies forceps, which are still used today in operating theaters. So it's amazing. It's not that long ago. I found it completely terrifying and a bit affirming. 
It is. Oh. I mean, there's hope and redemption in this book. It's a hard read in a lot of ways, and it was hard to write, too. I don't pull any punches. I lean into the violence of World War I because I don't feel that I would be doing these men justice unless I was explaining what that was like to be in those trenches. What did it feel like? You know, they would say that you could smell the front before you could see it. You know, that really paints a vivid picture of what this was like. And these men, sometimes so young, only 15 or 16 years old, were being sent into a war that they didn't understand. There's a story about this one 16-year-old boy, essentially, who goes to sign up. They said, do you want to stay for the duration of the war or for a year? And he said, well, I don't want to stay in the army for a year. I'll stay till the end of the war because everybody thought it would be over within weeks or months at the most. So they were thrown into this terrible situation. They didn't understand the technology. A lot of them thought that they could pop their head up over the trench and dodge the machine gun bullets. And the facial injuries were extraordinary. Also, I have to add, they were not sent into the trenches with helmets at first. The helmets come about a year later. So they had very little protection. And again, it's that old and new warfare. You have horses still. People have seen the stage play War Horse, and you know how important horses were in the First World War. But the horses were also causing facial injuries as well. So it was really a challenging time for everybody, especially doctors and nurses. Um, so we've got the plastic surgery, you mentioned anesthetics. What else is going on? The other thing I talk about in the book is blood transfusions. So you get enormous advances in blood transfusions at the time. The first blood banks appear in empty shell casings near the front, which is extraordinary. But I have in to empty say... Empty shell casings. Empty shell casings. Wow. That's where the first blood banks were. But I have to say that as affirming as this all is, and as wonderful as these advances are and continue to serve us today, we have to remember that... In the moment, they actually served to prolong the war because as doctors and nurses got better at patching these men up, they were being sent back to the front, they were feeding the war machine, and it was this vicious cycle. And so I think we really need to acknowledge that part, especially as we're seeing the return of old school warfare in Europe, that these advances, they are wonderful and they do serve us long after, but they can be a double-edged sword in the immediacy. Gilly's after war. His work's recognized. He's he allowed is. to continue. Yeah, he's knighted a little bit later than he probably should have been. I think he should have been well, recognized. All that, we all recognize that. <laughs> I know. We're all waiting on our knighthoods. Yeah. Um, it was quite a long time after the war, and there was a delay in that knighthood. When he was finally knighted, so one of the issues with this book was coming up with a title. Titles are really hard, right, Dan? Like, they're the bane of a writer's existence. And so I couldn't come up with a title, and I couldn't come up with a title. And finally, I came across a letter written to Harold Gillies congratulating him on his knighthood, and it said, Dear Facemaker. And I thought, well, that's the perfect title for this. But I have to say that Although it is called The Facemaker, and it is about Harold Gillies, it is as much about these disfigured soldiers and giving their voices back to the story. So it's about one man, and it's about many men. It's such a harrowing but amazing story. Ladies and gentlemen, that was uh, Lindsay Fitzharris. Thank you very much. Thank you. Our 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You can't really be proud of yourself if you don't know your history. Those were the words of Nelson Mandela and the foundation of a new podcast from The Times and The Sunday Times, Your History. Join me, Anna Temkin, Deputy Obituaries Editor of The Times, each week as we explore the astonishing lives that have shaped our own lives. Your History, available wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe as a special gift. You can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code Dan Snow at checkout.